Welcome, podcast professor Latinx. And today on Thursday, we have in the studio calling in Janine Utel, professor and chair of English at Widener University, author of Literary Couples and 20th Century Life Writing, as well as the recent edited comics of Alison Bechdel from the, ins- from the Outside In. Welcome, Janine. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Janine, tell me, so you've been, you're a scholar, if you kind of look at what you've been doing, James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, uh, 20, early 20th century modernist stuff. Um, I also noticed you did, uh, you did publish on sport movies, but yeah, comics, um, the turn to comics for you, is it a turn to comics? And why this particular volume on Alison Bechdel? That's a great question. Um, And I've had people comment on this uh, to me, especially in recent years, where they look at sort of the things I've been preoccupied with over the last couple of years, and they're like, wow, such dot, dot, dot variety. Um, How do you account for this? So um, let's see. I I was introduced to the work of Alison Bechtel actually at the Project Narrative Summer Institute at Uh, in Columbus. And the Institute as a whole was sort of a life-changing experience. And it really served to reroute a lot of my critical and scholarly attention more explicitly towards narrative. Um, And in that iteration of the Summer Institute, we read Fun Home. And um, I got a chance to delve into it. Robin Warhol's article uh, in College Literature was really influential for me and sort of helping me to work through the complexities of Bechtel's text. Um, and so the, the sort of turn towards narrative allowed me to go more deeply into things that had sort of already been preoccupying me with modernist texts. And I felt like it gave me, um, you know, sort of a more robust set of tools for thinking through um, what those texts and the texts that interest me in general are doing. Um, so there's, there was that sort of aha moment, like, wow, this book is fascinating and this, you know, woman's work is fascinating. But then, um, the move from James Joyce and Virginia Woolf, uh, isn't necessarily as radically strange, especially when it comes to Alison Bechtel, as it might seem. Um, these are complicated texts. These are fascinating writers. Um, Bechtel herself, complicated texts, fascinating writer, fascinating artist, um, and a lot of people have noted Bechtel's own indebtedness to modernist authors. Um, although I do appreciate, I think it's uh, Chris Pizzino who's got a great chapter on Alison Bechtel where he says, we all need to sort of get over the fetishization of modernism in Alison Bechtel's work. Um, and I, you know, that's a great, that's a great read on her. And that's certainly not the only thing about her that I find interesting. But, it, you know, if you've read Fun Home, you know that Ulysses is hugely important to the final chapter. If you've read Are You My Mother, you know that Virginia Woolf is a really important figure. Um, and especially in, you know, in terms of thinking about the recuperative moves that writing and art can make and the role of the woman artist. Um, so those seem like natural connections for a modernist scholar looking to you know, delve more deeply into Alison Bechtel's work. But for me... Um, the turn towards Bechtel in particular 
um, made a lot of sense when I realized that the things that I was most interested in working on for the next couple of projects were um, issues of gender, sexuality, and intimacy as they emerge in narrative. So the book I just published on literary couples and life writing comes directly out of that. But for me, um, so much of Bechtel's work, beginning with Dykes to Watch Out For, into Fun Home, and into Are You My Mother, um, I think so much of that work really does speak to my own interests in gender, sexuality, and intimacy, and how we narrativize these things. Um, and so basically what wound up happening was I decided to propose a session at MLA one year on comics and modernism, and the series editor for Critical Approaches to Comics Artists at Mississippi, David Ball, who's a fantastic, fantastic editor, colleague, brilliant guy, um, he said, would you like to do an edited volume on Alison Bechtel? And I said, I don't feel like I'm qualified to do that. <laughs> and he said, yes, you are. And I said, okay, great. And I did. And it was a fantastic experience. And it's gotten me so much more interested in doing much more work on um, gay and lesbian comics artists, both from, again, sort of a narrative perspective, which I feel is maybe missing a little bit in the study of those works, um, but also continuing to explore what they mean for representations of sexuality. Janine, for for folks who are listening to the podcast who might not be as familiar with uh, independent um, alternative comics and even before that, a kind of underground scene, why is Alison Bechdel so important to comics? Um, well, first, I would I would highly recommend for anybody who's interested in learning more about this, um, Hillary Shute's recent book, Why Comics. She's got a terrific chapter on gender and sexuality and the ways that comics that are very explicitly addressing issues of gender and sexuality sort of emerge from the underground comics, maybe comics with an X scene. Um, so Bechtel... Bechtel's important. <laughs> Bechtel is hugely influential. She's a groundbreaking artist. But I think it's important to also put her in the context of other gay and lesbian comics artists who emerged in the 70s and early 80s. And I, I have a couple of essays in the volume that's just come out where some of the scholars writing uh, in that volume address this context in really important and compelling ways. Um, so artists like Mary Wings, um, Jennifer Camper, uh, Diane DeMassa, um, Diane DeMassa in particular with Hothead Paisan, these were women lesbian cartoonists who were looking to create a space through underground magazines, through networks like the Lesbian Cartoonist Network in the early 90s. They were looking to create a space for specifically um, lesbian comics art. And they, you know, many of them were part of the, you know, they were in sort of gay comics orbit. Uh, and that was published, edited and published by Howard Cruz, in collaboration with Kitchen Sink Press. Um, and he really did a huge amount to get gay and lesbian comics artists out, you know, not, you know, not just make them more visible sort of in the underground, but begin to sort of grow their audience. And by the time Bechtel started to really devote her time and energy to producing Dykes to Watch Out For, which ran from the early 90s until 2008. 
Um, and by the time it was at its peak, she was self-syndicating it in dozens of publications. By the time Bechtel was putting out Dykes to Watch Out For, there had already been a number of comics artists in sort of the underground scene. And she's one of the figures, I think, along with Howard Cruz, who really began to help people, you know, help these artists and help these stories and help these texts find a wider audience. So what is it about? So fun. There's something. So 2006, big New York publisher behind it. Fun Home mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. published. And tell me what it, I mean, this might be speculating, but, you know, in, in a many ways, uh, Alison Bechdel, even the Bechdel test, all that stuff is almost a kind of household name where someone like Howard Cruz or Roberta Gregory um, is not. Is there something um, about Bechdel, Fun Home, etc., that, you know, somehow was able to transfer more easily into a mainstream imaginary and marketplace? That is such a great question. And I've thought about this a lot, um, especially when thinking about, you know, as you say, exactly, somebody like Howard Cruz, who well before Fun Home in the 90s published his own memoir, um, Stuck Rubber Baby, about growing up gay in the South during the civil rights movement. Um, and it's gone through, Stuck Rubber Baby has gone through a couple of editions and reprinting. I believe an, a new one is about to come out very soon. Um, and that's, that's an amazing book. And why is it, this is, this is such a great question, why is it that it was Fun Home that really broke these kinds of stories out into sort of a more quote-unquote mainstream audience and a mainstream consciousness? Um, and you're right, I can only speculate um, thinking about the process that she went through of drafting the book. Um, and, you know, anybody who's interested in delving into that more deeply should absolutely check out, check out um, Susan Van Dyne's essay in the volume on the composition process. Um, but just thinking about the composition process, thinking about the ways that she tried to go about telling the story, thinking about my own teaching of the book and what's resonated with students, um, I think I would say... I would say a few things. First, um, the story of a family. Um, I've just uh, come off teaching the novel over the last couple of weeks in my graphic narrative course at Widener. And one of the things that really resonated with students was the story of the family and raising for themselves the question, what even constitutes a quote unquote normal family? How do we grapple with the relationship between parents and children and fathers and daughters? Um, there were a few women in the room who really, uh, really felt themselves in the story of the daughter trying to work through complicated relationships with her father. Um, I think that's, that's part of it. I think the, the story of the development of the artist resonates with people. Um, I think, you know, sort of watching this, you know, the arc of this girl you know, going through young adulthood, going to going through young womanhood, um, trying to figure out who she is, not just in terms of her sexual identity, but as an artist. I think that resonates with people. Um, honestly, I think to go back to her uh, indebtedness to literary modernism and the elusiveness of the text, I think um, English professors had something to do with it. The book shows up on common readings all over the country at colleges and universities. And I think the literariness of the book 
um, really speaks to folks, I'll be honest, like myself, who, you know, love to bring difficult, challenging texts into the classroom. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's a deeply human book, but so many things are. Um, you know, there are so many deeply human books that don't, and deeply human texts and deeply human works of art that don't get that same level of popular attention that she has. But those would be just, you know, some thoughts for maybe mm. why that, that, that's happened. And it's interesting to note that um, Are You My Mother did not necessarily meet with that same level of popular enthusiasm. Mm. So um, that, that took her in a different direction, of course, and um, the, the reviews were more mixed. Mm -hmm. It has not yet been made into an award-winning Broadway musical. Um, so... Yeah, that's really interesting. So, while you so you mentioned teaching um, Bechtel, and let me ask you this: um, Can you do this? Take your students to the same place that you do when you teach alphabetic literature with um, comic books, and if so, why? And if not, why? Um, yeah. So can I take them to a different can, place? Do you, yeah, like, yeah. you know, a very, very, I haven't, I'll be honest. I mean, I haven't taught mm -hmm. a novel in maybe a decade. And you uh -huh. know, I'm uh -huh. in a literature department um, or departments. And um, I do, I do flash fiction and I do uh, comics mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So what, what's, you know, what's your experience? I mean, is there something you can do with a Virginia Woolf that you can't do with Alison Bechdel and vice versa? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, hmm. Let me, I'm, my, my impulse is to say, yes, it's a very different kind of experience um, working with students on comics and graphic narrative rather than alphabetic text. And I'm going to say that, and I'm sort of saying it out loud as a way to sort of let my brain think through maybe some examples. Mm -hmm. um, so I, here's maybe a, a concrete example, and it's something that we worked on quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. Um, and we, just as a little bit of context, in this course, we began with Mouse. And the next thing we'll be doing after Fun Home is uh, Jimmy Corrigan, Chris Ware's Jimmy Corrigan, Smartest Kid on Earth. And this particular group of students, this has not always been the case where I've taught this course, but this particular group of students, are they're coming to the work of reading graphic narrative and comics uh, with very little experience. Um, in the past, I've had students come in with a lot of experience, maybe having read Frank Miller, or they really loved V for Vendetta, and that's not the case with this group. Um, and so what we've been focusing on in large measure so far has been the detection of patterns and motifs and the ways that the repetition of images can sort of create a different, they do different work in terms of creating a story world. And this is something that they are not necessarily attuned to paying attention to. So you might be thinking, well, Janine, a lot of times when we study literary texts, we're looking for patterns and motifs. Um, but attuning them to finding these things in images. So for example, the scene, the panel at the very beginning of Fun Home when Allison, character Allison is typing, I'm a lesbian. And you've got the, um, you know, the 
text box with the arrow pointing to the typewriter and the word lesbian is popping up. And then we have the progression from panel, you know, that panel to another panel where she's putting it in the mailbox and then we get the response from the parents. Um, they, they won't notice that that image recurs in chapter seven and they won't necessarily pick up on why it's recurring. They won't notice that an image of uh, character Allison and her brothers at Bruce Bechtel's funeral recurs three other times across the text, each time with different communication of thoughts or you know, actual sort of verbal communication to other people in the scene. And so getting them to trace these sort of visual motifs and these patterns across the text and getting them to think about, you know, what this means for how we know what's going on in the narrative. This is different work from the kind of work that we've done when we've studied, for example, Mrs. Dalloway. It's not radically different. It's not totally different, but they're not necessarily as cued into the work that the images are doing. They hang out a lot with the gutter text, kind of trying to follow the story and they're not necessarily observing at first the gap between the images and the text. And by the time we get to the end, they're beginning to sort of think through what valences these images might carry relative to what the narrator might be trying to communicate. You know, um, as you were talking there, I was thinking also about our students living in a contemporary moment that seems marked by all sorts of divisive um, sort of politics and violence against children and women, uh, violence against mm. um, LGBTQ folk. And mm -hmm. I just, you know, is there also a sense, even though something like Fun Home is really a, um, this sort of exploration of secrets and secrets in families that can damage family, it's maybe also a place for our students or new generations to find their own voices and maybe even refuge from all of the craziness of the world. And I put a question mark at the end of that statement. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that's, that's so lovely. And I will put an exclamation point at the beginning of my response. Um, we, I'm thinking about a really amazing conversation that we had in class as we were, you know, maybe midway through the book, we were talking about um, the image at the beginning. I think it's a maybe chapter three or chapter four, where she shows the dictionary page with the definition of queer. And she notes the, the gaps in that particular edition of the dictionary's definition of queer. And it's the, it's the page where the, there's the two panels underneath where she, you know, takes a sip of sherry and talks about how the experience of realizing that her father's death was queer makes her feel a little bit drunk. And we spend a lot of time on that page thinking about the ways in which she turns to and subverts different forms of authority for defining what it means to be queer, for uh, sort of putting constraints around uh, identity in that way. And the students, I generally tend to like shy away from conversations with or about students that are like, well, you know, kids today and this generation, because I feel like that's very generalizing. And I like to feel like 
even though I'm an older person now, I can still connect with my students. But they went right to, you know, what it meant for, for their generation to be talking through how the very notion of queer would have been erased. And they realized that there are so many different ways to talk about sexuality and to talk about sexual identity that, in, that they're finding quite liberating. And that made them go back into the book and look at Bruce's experience in a you know, much more complex kind of a way. Yes, they, are, they were deeply troubled by that moment right at the beginning of the book where she says, would an ideal husband have sex with underaged teen teenage boys? They were profoundly shaken by that and the way it's just sort of presented right at the beginning. And they spent a lot of the book working through that. But to then get to the end and to see her sort of counterfactualizing what it would have been like for him to go through the AIDS crisis, for example, and they were very sort of preoccupied and interested in what it meant for her to think about her father in that historical moment, which on the one hand feels a little bit distant from us, maybe. On the other hand, it's not something that it's not a problem that's been solved. And on a third hand, um, we are still living in a moment where um, LGBTQ individuals are, are not always in a, in a place that is hospitable or safe. And so um, I think that they, they didn't see her work around um, defining gender identity or questioning definitions of gender identity. They didn't see that as removed from their experience at all. They saw it as something that we're all still kind of going through the process of figuring it out, figuring out. And they felt themselves very much part of that process. You know, um, fear, right? So fear, trans, non-binary, queer, phobia, mm -hmm. uh, you know, South Carolina's, you know, House of Representatives, you know, when they threatened to pull the funding. And I think they did pull the funding because the College of Charleston had as its mm -hmm. choice for summer reading Fun Home. But yeah, there's this, there's something like a kind of lightning rod with Fun Home and, and other narratives like that that really push to the fore where this fear of, say, otherness is coming from and how it threatens the kind of straight folk and the sort of social status and privilege that has been traditionally linked to um, straight, you know, uh, folks and patriarchy, colonialism, economic sort of political power. So lightning rod, fun home as a lightning rod um, to raise awareness about kind of social issues for better or worse in this case with, you know, the House of Representatives there saying we're going to pull funding. Um, it does matter, right? These, these narratives do matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think didn't, um, and I may be getting this a little bit wrong, but didn't the Rutledge Guide to Gender and Sexuality in Comics just come out? It's on its way out. It'll be out in June. Yep. That's, see that, I think that the, the fact of that volume coming out um, speaks to the need for these kinds of stories and for these kinds of texts. Um, and I think that not just with Fun Home, but with so many other kinds of stories around these issues. Um, rep, you know, we say representation matters, but clearly it does. 
And, you know, one of the things I think that comics art can do, especially in these, around these issues, is to make these, make these experiences literally visible. I know, you know, literally makes it sound like I'm talking about language, but the graphic, the graphic text makes us look at these experiences. And I think maybe that's part of the lightning rod factor that you're describing. But I think that's also why we need to literally sort of look at and see these experiences. I mean, going back to Dykes to Watch Out For, when Bechtel began drawing comics of lesbians and lesbian stories and lesbian experiences and relationships, she said that the thing she wanted to do was make them visible. Janine, as as I wrap this up, let me ask you that, you know, there's still so few queer characters in mainstream comics and their iterations, you know, film or TV shows. And I'm thinking mm. Birds of Prey that just came out, October Faction on Netflix um, has, you know, Jeff. Um, uh, there's a comic crush, America, America Chavez, right? Um there's, you know, twin gay brothers and Raina Talgemeyer's drama, but there's, it's, it's still, we're still kind of, um, you know, picking it that sort of th- these things aren't, aren't everywhere. We're sort of, I, I can almost name, you know, the most, you know, recent examples on one hand. Um, I think you just did. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what, obviously, some someone like Alison Bechtel is important, but mm-hmm. you know sometimes I wonder if we've we're seeing the kind of deep uh you know transformation not because she's not influential on many many creators and many many mm-hmm. um of our students new generations of folks scholars but um just because the gatekeeping continues um mm-hmm. and I just you know sometimes I feel a little pessimistic. That's a great point. Um, and I, I, I agree. And the starting point for thinking about the volume was originally, um, you know, why is it that this particular person sort of broke out of what we might consider to be, you know, the quote unquote underground? And what was it that, again, going back to your question, what made this particular artist's experiences and stories resonate with, with people? Um, I I'll in this I might defer to Heike Bauer in my response here. Um, I don't necessarily want to say pessimism because I'm not a I'm not a super pessimistic person, and I think that once we begin to find ways to tell these stories, then that maybe does make room for more of the stories. It creates more space in the world for these stories, space that may that perhaps should have already been there, but it gives people more equipment for seeing why these stories really matter. Um, but Heike Bauer, in her, she's got an essay in the um, Cambridge Companion to Gay and Lesbian Literature, I think. And um, she says, do not let Fun Home be the only work of comics art by a lesbian that you ever encounter. If you're drawn to Fun Home, if you're drawn to the work of Alison Bechtel, then go find those other artists. Go dig into their work. And advocate for their, you know, their visibility and their presence in, you know, in comics art and even more generally on the, you know, in the literary and pop culture scene more broadly. 
And I think she's right. And it was really, you know, she's such a brilliant writer. And just to have that clarion call as I was working on the volume really sort of made me think there's, this should not be the only edited collection or work of scholarship on Alison Bechtel or on, SB, or on any gay or lesbian comic artist. Thank you, Janine. So just to kind of close this, I would say scholarship matters, narrative matters, comic books matter, and they matter because without the sort of life force and understanding that, for instance, you bring um, in putting together the comics of Alison Bechdel and all of the scholars that are involved in that, along with your own scholarship, without that and without the creation that's happening in the world, um, well, then we might as well kind of call it a day, right? <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. And I. And that's why I don't get too pessimistic because I believe very strongly in what you've just said so beautifully. Okay. Well, thank you, Janine, for joining us uh, for Professor Latinx podcast, and um, stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you, Janine. Thank you for having me.